there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On the morning of August 29th, 2005, 72-year-old disabled veteran William Morgan sat in his wheelchair watching the news. Miss Morgan Le Fay was right where she always was, by his side. Morgan Le Fay was named after a sorceress from the legends of King Arthur, and like her namesake, the one-year-old apricot poodle was enchanting. She won her owner's heart the instant they met. Together, they were tracking the progress of Hurricane Katrina. The Category 5 hurricane was about to make landfall in their hometown, New Orleans. But they didn't know, couldn't know, that three levees had already burst. Before William or Morgan could blink, a torrent of floodwater slammed against their front door, trapping them inside. Filthy runoff poured through cracks until William and Miss Morgan were left gasping for air, only inches between them and the ceiling. There was no time to panic. William dove below the surface, smashed through a window, and paddled hard towards sunlight. Once he'd made it out, he returned for Miss Morgan. He lifted her onto the safety of their roof, grabbed onto a nearby tree branch, and held on for dear life. For 14 hours, they weathered the elements together. Rain, wind, currents, debris. Hope finally arrived in the form of the United States Coast Guard. William was pulled onto a boat, shivering, starving, and dehydrated. As they began to drive away, William stopped them. Miss Morgan, the rescuers had forgotten Miss Morgan. We're not in the dog business, they told him. William watched as Miss Morgan ran back and forth on the roof, yelping. But there was nothing to do. The two best friends watched each other turn into a speck on the horizon and then disappear. William later told a reporter, had I known she couldn't have come with me, I would have stayed. This episode is dedicated to the volunteers who were in the business of dogs, like Miss Morgan, during one of the worst storms the United States has ever seen. Welcome to Dog Tales, a podcast original. Every week, we tell the stories of historic, heroic canines. 
we'll profile dogs who saved people from earthquakes, went to outer space, and even spurred the invention of Velcro. If you're looking for fun stories and a warm heart, you're barking up the right tree. I'm your host, Alastair. You can find episodes of Dog Tales and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dog Tales for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dog Tales in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, we're telling the story of the dogs and animals of Hurricane Katrina and of the countless volunteers who worked tirelessly to save their lives. Hurricane Katrina devastated more than 90,000 square miles of the southern coast of the United States. It produced more than 33 tornadoes and winds that reached 170 miles per hour. It resulted in $161 billion worth of damage. Millions of people lost their homes, and an estimated 1,833 people died. It was a natural disaster. There was nothing anyone could do to stop the rain or the wind. But there were ways of mitigating its effects. At 9.30 a.m. on August 28, 2005, the mayor of New Orleans, Ray Nagan, ordered a mandatory evacuation. It was the first of its kind for the metropolitan area of 1.3 million people. Before the day's end, an estimated 1 million left their city and their homes behind. Another 20,000 or so sought shelter in the Louisiana Superdome. It was labeled a refuge of last resort for those who needed it. The arena was built to withstand 200 mile per hour winds and flooding up to 35 feet. The National Guard had 300 troops stationed inside, but they did not accept pets. Most evacuees assumed they'd be returning home shortly after the hurricane passed. Many set up their cats and dogs with food and water, gave them a hug and a squeeze, and told them that they'd be right back. But as the storm got closer, more than 100,000 people still remained in the city. Some believed their house could withstand the hurricane. Others didn't have access to transportation or couldn't afford to leave. But an estimated 30 to 40% of people who remained stayed because they refused to abandon their pets. At 6.10 a.m. on August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina made landfall in southeast Louisiana. At the time, it was a Category 3 hurricane. At its peak, it reached Category 5 the highest classification that exists. Category 3 hurricane winds are 111 to 129 miles per hour, while Category 5 hurricane winds are 157 miles per hour or higher, faster than most high-speed trains. Because New Orleans sits on the coast, a system of man-made walls and canals have surrounded the city since the 1830s. By 2005, 
they were outdated due to lack of proper upkeep. By 9am, less than three hours after Hurricane Katrina made landfall, the first levee in New Orleans was breached. Before the storm was over, there would be at least 49 more. Water flooded into the low-lying areas of the city, half of which is below sea level. Before the end of the day, 80% of the city was under as much as 20 feet of water. The 100,000 people still in New Orleans were running out of options. First responders acted as quickly as they could trying to save lives. But emergency evacuation procedures ignored one population entirely, pets. In a press conference, Michael Brown, the director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, explicitly told reporters that dogs and cats were not his concern. His priority was to save human lives. The Red Cross and the United States Coast Guard had similar policies. Organizations that did specialize in animal rescue, like the Louisiana Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or SPCA, didn't have the resources to weather the elements. There were no first responders for the biggest population still living in New Orleans, pets and strays. It was a blind spot in evacuation procedures. In dire straits, man's best friend was deemed non-essential. Labrador retrievers paced, stranded on rooftops. Maine Coon cats clung to branches in toxic floodwaters. Animals of all shapes and sizes were barricaded in homes waiting for their owners to return as filthy water poured into living rooms. Near a bus stop in Baton Rouge, a dog was found tied up on the side of the road. He had an unopened container of dog food with him. A nearby note read, Please take care of my dog. His name is Chucky. Chucky was lucky enough to be found by Louisiana State Treasurer John Kennedy, who took him in. But not every dog was so blessed. Some owners tried to bring their pets with them to safety. One woman cried to officials as she boarded an evacuation bus. After losing her house, her job, and her car, she didn't want to lose her dog too. But she had no other choice. She had to let him go. Similarly, a small, fluffy, white mixed-breed dog named Snowball was torn from the arms of her young owner while waiting to board a bus. The boy was so overcome with despair, he dropped to his knees and vomited. The actions weren't intended to be cruel. Time, energy, and space were all limited resources, and rescuers were given strict orders. No animals. But there was absolutely no way that Don Moret Williams was leaving behind Sebastian, his fluffy black cocker spaniel. His home had already been flooded and the two had escaped together. They'd survived hell and literal high water. Moret even located an air mattress that he could put Sebastian on to tow him through the sometimes neck-deep floods. But even as they found elevation on Interstate 10 and a helicopter arrived, they were far from salvation. Sebastian 
wasn't allowed to board. Moret acted fast. He found a black trash bag and hid Sebastian inside. There was just enough airflow for the dog to breathe. Moret said a quick prayer, begged Sebastian to remain quiet, and boarded the copter. Incredibly, Sebastian seemed to understand. After the flight, they made their way to a bus where there were more furry stowaways. Puppies, kittens, and birds were hidden in suitcases, under blouses, in boxes, some even stuffed down particularly baggy pants. Sebastian and Moret found safety in the back of the bus, where Sebastian could peek his tiny snout out of the bag. When the bus arrived at the Astrodome Stadium in Houston, good news awaited them. Volunteers from the SPCA were waiting to help. Sebastian didn't need to hide anymore. They could temporarily take him into their care. Moret would be able to reclaim him as soon as circumstances allowed. Weeks later, when Moret was able to see Sebastian again, he spent the morning crying. Sebastian wasn't just a dog to him, he was family. Moret had lost his elderly father in the storm. He had no siblings, no children, no one but Sebastian. So when the little Cocker Spaniel finally ran into his arms again, it was like the whole world stopped. The love the two shared was the only thing salvaged from the storm. As Moret told reporters, Sebastian was his baby. And judging by the amount of kisses he got from Sebastian in return, the sentiment was reciprocated. As happy as their reunion was, most weren't so lucky. Hundreds of thousands of pets were abandoned in the storm. And when the waters finally settled, the severity of what it meant to leave so many behind really started to set in. Luckily, hundreds of people around the country leapt off their couches and headed to the Big Easy. They were ready to use their voices to defend the animals that couldn't speak for themselves. Coming up, Volunteers risk their lives to rescue pets left behind in the storm. Now, back to the story. When Hurricane Katrina hit the southern coast of the United States in August 2005, it destroyed millions of homes and killed thousands of people. First responders acted as quickly as they could to save the people trapped in New Orleans. But there was one population that nobody knew what to do with, pets. An estimated 600,000 animals were killed or stranded by the hurricane. Images of dogs and cats trapped on rooftops and paddling through toxic waters appeared on news outlets across the world. The SPCA and other organizations were doing all they could, but they needed assistance. Luckily, help was on the way. Hundreds of volunteers from across the nation traveled to Louisiana to lend a hand. And what they were signing up for was no easy task. Although the storm had passed, the city was still dangerous. Military helicopters flew over flooded neighborhoods searching for survivors. The water was black and filled with sewage, debris, gasoline, and dirt. It was poison. And yet, 
Despite everything, 55-year-old animal lover Charlotte Bass Lilly didn't want to leave. The hurricane had dealt significant damage to her home in the Lower Garden District, but it was still standing. It wasn't underwater. She was alive, and so were her husband and 12 pets, eight dogs and four cats. She was lucky. She wanted to stay and help repair the city that she loved so much. But her home, with its missing walls and a collapsed roof, wasn't safe, especially not after the looting started. As Charlotte told one reporter, guys were strutting up the street with ammo and holding AK-47s. It was like the Wild West. She joked that she could have taken a few of them out with her own guns. In the end, however, she knew that her fighting spirit would be better served elsewhere, and she decided to leave. But she wasn't going far. She'd made a commitment to her city. She was going to save the animals of New Orleans. She had 30 years of volunteer experience under her belt. It had started small, trapping feral cats in her neighborhood and getting them neutered. Then she transitioned to working with local animal rescue groups. She felt fulfilled when she rescued strays and gave them a home. And Hurricane Katrina had changed nothing. Less than a day after the storm ended, Charlotte Bass Lilly, her husband, their dogs and their cats piled into their car. As they drove, the reality really sank in. They saw firsthand what Katrina had done to the city's animals. They drove to an animal shelter in Gonzales, Louisiana, about an hour's drive outside of New Orleans. The Louisiana SPCA had lost their permanent shelter in the storm, so they'd moved their operation to the Lamar Dixon Expo Center. It was typically used for rodeos, cattle shows, and horse exhibitions. But it was about to become home to the largest animal rescue operation in American history, housing hundreds of volunteers and more than 8,000 cats and dogs. However, when Charlotte arrived on August 30th, 2005, it was empty. She was only the eighth person to show up. The shelter was still being cobbled together. The SPCA gave her one of their old animal control trucks. The police lights on its hood allowed her to enter and exit the city without much hassle from officials. Every day afterward, Charlotte woke up at 6 a.m. to receive her assignments. She was handed a list of addresses belonging to people who'd left behind their pets. And each day, she headed into the still-flooded city with a hope and a prayer that she'd find the animals alive and well. In her earliest rescue attempts, she noted that fish were jumping out of the water. But soon, nothing was jumping. Even the snakes were dead. But it didn't matter. She was determined to rescue every animal that she could find. Every evening, the rescue volunteers brought hundreds of animals to the expo center. But Charlotte knew that, in a truck, she couldn't reach 80% of the city. It was submerged in water. Those were the parts that needed her help the most. So, she bought a boat. She was determined to go to the places that few others would. 
By mid-October, she'd saved more than 500 cats and dogs. She'd broken down doors, fished through sludge, and saw more than her fair share of death. But the rescue operation at the Lamar Dixon Expo Center was coming to a close. The city was finally drained, and people were returning to their homes. Of the 15,000 animals that came through the pop-up clinic, only 15% were matched with their owners again. Most of the former pets were taken to other shelters around the country. Their owners either assumed they were dead or had no means of tracking them down. But no matter the end result, 8,000 animals were given a second chance at life. The shelter's results were extraordinary. But for many, it was time to try and get back to normal, for the city to start healing. But not for Charlotte. She wasn't done with her work. She couldn't rest. There was no normal. Not when there were thousands more pets to save. She gathered a small group of volunteers and took over an abandoned nail salon near downtown New Orleans. They called themselves Animal Rescue New Orleans. What they lacked in resources, they made up for in willpower. Over the holidays, Animal Rescue New Orleans put out food and water on every other block in the city. They were able to cover more than 200 square miles. Before the year's end, the small nail shop was overflowing with rescues. In early 2006, Charlotte relocated Animal Rescue New Orleans to a warehouse just outside the city limits. And it's thanks to the work of people like her that, after Katrina, New Orleans residents had any hope of being reunited with their beloved pets, even those who'd previously assumed all hope was lost. After the Coast Guard rescued 72-year-old William Morgan from the storm, leaving behind his beloved apricot poodle, he was brought to a Veterans Affairs Hospital in Miami. But he never stopped thinking about the best friend he'd left behind, Miss Morgan Le Fay. Tears welled in his eyes each time he pictured his boat speeding away as she cried out for him. 900 miles away, he could still hear her whimpers. Luckily, a volunteer at the Veterans Hospital empathized with William's story. They helped him scour the internet looking for news of his beloved dog. Then, one day, they clicked on a website, Best Friends Animal Society. They had two apricot poodles, both of which were found in William's neighborhood. Both had rhinestone collars, just like his dog. Before long, a reunion was arranged. Volunteers drove two days all the way from Mississippi to Miami to see if one of them was truly Miss Morgan Le Fay. But William Morgan was nervous as he rolled up in his wheelchair. What if it wasn't his baby girl? What if Miss Morgan didn't remember him? Or worse, what if she resented him for leaving her behind? As he went down the halls, William felt like his heart was beating out of his chest. His best friend could be just a few feet away. When he turned the corner, he saw two apricot poodles waiting outside for him. Volunteers held onto their leashes. But only one of them tugged when they saw William. 
The volunteer let go and the poodle headed straight for him, snuggled into his lap and gave him a kiss. There was just one more thing that William had to do, a test. He told a volunteer to tug on the dog's right ear. If it was Miss Morgan, she would sit. One light tug of the ear and Miss Morgan sat right down. And the test had just been a formality. William knew his baby girl when he saw her. And now he remembered what normalcy felt like. What a gift unconditional love can be. He looked into Miss Morgan's eyes and found hope that he thought was lost. Together, they had weathered a terrible storm. And now, the future was just a little bit brighter and a lot more bearable. Incredibly, the one-year-old Miss Morgan had managed to survive 12 days alone on the rooftop where William Morgan left her. When rescuers from Best Friends Animal Society found her, she was mostly skin and bones. They rushed her to an emergency shelter and nursed her back to health. Now, more than two months after Katrina, Miss Morgan Le Fay and William were together again. Tears streamed down the faces of everyone who watched. The affection they were witnessing was essential. Tears streamed down the faces of everyone who watched. The affection they were witnessing was essential. Even in a hurricane, it was a love worth saving. Coming up, Congress learns from Hurricane Katrina and fights to protect animals nationwide. Now, back to the story. Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in August 2005. In the weeks that followed, the relief efforts were nothing short of heroic. Thousands upon thousands of animals were rescued. Many were reunited with their owners. Many more were sent to animal shelters throughout the country. But while it's important to celebrate the victories, we also have to acknowledge the reality that Katrina left behind. And how triumphing over the odds isn't always so cut and dry. Like William Morgan, Jesse Pullins was also separated from his beloved companion, JJ, a Labrador Shepherd mix. JJ meant the absolute world to Jesse. He was much more than a pet. He'd been a life raft for Jesse in difficult times. Jesse was a recovering drug addict who turned his life around just as his wife passed away from cancer. JJ was there when Jesse had nobody else to turn to. But Jesse knew he couldn't bring JJ with him when the time came to evacuate. So, with tremendous reluctance, he left the dog behind at his home with what he hoped was enough food and water to survive. He and his family headed to Baton Rouge. It took months of searching after the storm for Jesse to find his canine friend. But when he did, he realized that JJ wasn't just alive. He was in California and he'd been adopted. A pair of sisters had taken JJ in, Robin Henningsen and Kathy Franco and they'd fallen in love with him the same way that Jesse had. 
It took a long and heartbreaking legal dispute for Jesse to finally get JJ back. Eventually, the sisters reluctantly agreed to let him return to New Orleans. It was, after all, his home. But the process made Jesse and JJ's reunion bittersweet. Jesse told reporters, when he came out of the cage, he came straight to me. JJ is a part of me, a part of me that was missing for a long time. But JJ was now a part of Robin and Kathy too. And Jesse understood that they were just as heartbroken as he'd have been if JJ was taken away from him. As he said, there were no good guys or bad guys. There was only a hole in his heart that needed to be filled. Of course, thousands of dogs and owners didn't even get a bittersweet reunion. Most pets never saw their people again. Shelters around the country were overrun with animals, many of whom were put down when they couldn't find homes. Today, New Orleans and its animals are still recovering. Entire neighborhoods are being rebuilt. Descendants of the dogs that survived Katrina roam the poorest areas of the Big Easy, like the Ninth and Seventh Wards, many in packs, and their puppies are being born into a life that none of them deserve. Animal control officers like Travis Causey know all too well the suffering that strays face. And it's not just starvation and disease. In the most dangerous neighborhoods, they're chained to fences to drive away unwanted guests and intruders. Others are forced into fighting rings. It doesn't matter that these dogs or their parents or their parents' parents were once welcome inside. They're the descendants of the abandoned. And to this day, most of them remain so. And Officer Causey is there to witness the day-to-day -day struggle. One summer day in 2012, he tried to treat an emaciated pit bull. It was slowly dying in a backyard. But he was interrupted by a phone call. A human had been bitten by another wild dog. And so, Causey was forced to leave the pit bull behind to die on its own. Thankfully, some still feel the outrage from 2005 and 2006. For Travis Causey and Charlotte Bass Lilly, the fight isn't over. Both are still working tirelessly to rectify the human error that happened after an act of God. And there were plenty of errors. In September 2005, the United States House of Representatives formed a special committee. It investigated local, state, and federal government's preparation and response to Katrina. Their final report was titled, A Failure of Initiative, meaning more could have and should have been done. But with every failure comes an opportunity to learn. And one of the biggest lessons of the storm involves some of the smallest members of our families, our pets. Believe it or not, nothing has done more to improve the legal status of our furry, four-legged friends than Hurricane Katrina. The tragedy struck a nerve in pet owners everywhere. It raised a question that hadn't been properly considered before. How do we treat the animals we love during a state of emergency? 
our pet's survival has become intrinsically linked to our care. By domesticating them, we've changed the course of their evolution. Which isn't to say that domesticated animals are incapable of surviving on their own in the wild. In fact, that's a common misconception. It's been proven that they can. But what do we owe these incredible animals? The ones who spend their lives by our side in our care when disaster strikes. When it's not just a question of surviving day to day, but of surviving a Category 5 hurricane. In the weeks following Hurricane Katrina, the public flooded Congress with letters and phone calls. It appeared that Americans had finally found an issue that they could all agree on. It wasn't healthcare, immigration, war, or guns. It was the love that Americans have for their pets. Progress began on the state level. In May 2006, New Orleans lawmakers, including state senator Juanette Clough Fontenot, held court in Baton Rouge to hear public testimony. They were considering amending the state's disaster-related policies. Charlotte Bass Lilly and William Morgan testified, but they were far from alone. Countless others joined in. The gravity of their stories filled the room and left silence and tears in their wake. They mourned for the 1,800 human lives lost, and they presented another statistic. 150,000 pets died as well. How many human lives might have been saved if owners didn't have to choose between saving themselves and saving their dog? And thankfully, the people were heard. In the words of Senator Fontenot, we were derelict in our duties to the citizens of Louisiana because we didn't make arrangements for pets. In June 2006, Governor Kathleen Blanco signed the Pet Evacuation Bill. It required all authorities in the state of Louisiana to consider pets in their evacuation procedures. They are required to be evacuated alongside their owners. They must be provided with transportation and any refuge site needs to find ways to accommodate them. And the regulation went national. The federal government passed the Pets Evacuation and Transportation Standards Act, or the PETS Act. Support for the bill was almost unanimous. California Congressman Tom Lantos, who introduced the bill to the House of Representatives, said he had never before in his long congressional career received so much support and encouragement for a piece of legislation. More states have also passed their own version of the bill, tailored to their unique landscapes, climate, and disasters. The importance of the legislation for animal rights can't be understated. Now, in the United States of America, our furry family members have legal standing. But we've always known, ever since they came into our lives, they're members of our society, and they won't be left behind again. Thanks for listening to Dog Tales. Every dog has his day, and our day is Mondays. We'll be back then with a new episode. 
You can find more episodes of Dog Tales and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Dog Tales for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dog Tales on Spotify, just open the app and type Dog Tales in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for another good story about a good dog. Dog Tales was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dog Tales was written by Connor Sampson with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>